Okay, Matthew chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, open up, go there. Uh, We just are teaching verse by verse through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. I think this is like week 77. Uh, And I want to start with um, just a a thought. Um, And maybe this resonates with uh, some of you. I'm not sure, but this is something that happens to me uh, quite a bit. It happens a lot. Uh, My wife is in here this morning, so she will get a good chuckle out of this. But there's this kind of thing that that will consistently happen whereby I'll be, you know, doing something. Let's just set the scene here. Okay, so it's the morning. Uh, I'm I'm just at home from the gym. I'm making my lunch. And um, if you know me well, I'm a little bit uh, OCD and anal retentive about, like, my schedule and my routine. And I really don't like it when things kind of derail what I'm trying to accomplish. Okay, so I'm in the, it's the morning. I'm, I, I got an elbow for counter space because we have like 13 kids and everyone's trying to make their lunch and this is dad's space, stay out of dad's space. Uh, and then this thing happens that just totally throws off my morning. I'll need to find something and I can't find it. So I open up the fridge. Let's say hypothetically I was making a sandwich. I don't make sandwiches. I never eat sandwiches because I don't eat bread. But let's just say I was and I needed to not judging anyone who eats sandwiches. It's not keto. Um, and, and I need to find the mustard. So here's how this goes. I open up the fridge. I look in the fridge. Where do I look? I look where the mustard always is. Where's the mustard always? It's in the door. Where? Next between the, it's wedged between the soy sauce and the ranch dressing. Third little shelfy thing down. No mustard. Close the fridge. Well, this sucks. Can't find the mustard. So what do I do? I go to the bottom of the stairs. My wife's upstairs getting ready for the day. Kelly, I can't find the mustard. Where's the mustard? Are we out of mustard? It's in the fridge. Like, no, it's not. I just looked. She's like, look again. It's in the fridge. So I go back to the fridge, open the fridge. This time, I'm like, well, I'm going to look around even more. So I do. I look around even more. I look around things, look in the door again. It's not there. So I close the fridge. This time I'm, now I'm angry, right? Because I don't have a lot of time. My time's important. It's worth something. I need to get out of the house at a certain time. This is frustrating. Kelly, turn the shower off. Come down here. It's not in the fridge. So she comes downstairs. And you can just hear her mumbling on her breath. Stupid idiot. I thought I only had four kids. I have five kids. This is ridiculous. She opens up the fridge. I swear, she doesn't even look. She moves something, grabs the mustard, slams it on the counter, and then just leaves. I'm like, oh, I didn't see it there. I didn't see it. Okay. <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? Is that just me? Okay. All the women are laughing. Okay, I learned something this week. I learned something this week. And this is like, this is good news, okay? Dudes, listen up. This is good news. This is like cataclysmic, life-altering stuff. Like, there's Jesus, and then there's this, okay? It's not my fault. It's not your fault. It's actually the way we were born. There's something wrong with us. (laughs) No surprise there. Okay, so, so here's what's happening in that moment, okay? And, and it, this is actually, like, biologically, it's just true. You can't really argue with it. It's just true. So next time this happens, you got a card to play, dudes, okay? And men are tend to be uh, are more prone to kind of have this happen to them. But the way that your brain works is it's constantly, like, speaking to itself. It's constantly processing all the information that you're seeing. So you're, you're, you're in a room. It's looking around, and there's this feedback loop that 
that is constantly going. And it's telling you, like, oh, I've seen this before. I haven't seen this before. You know, this looks new. And it's just talking, talking, talking. And it's kind of taking a scan of the room, and it's building a framework from which you now see the rest of the world. So in an environment like I just described, when I open the fridge, my brain tells me, you have opened this fridge a lot. And it has a picture of what the fridge looks like. This is, that's why I'm saying this out loud. It just sounds so ridiculous. And I'm not making it up, I swear. I actually like read this somewhere, okay? It's, I asked Siri, and this is what Siri told me. But it's, it's got, you have this picture in your brain of what the fridge actually looks like. And so when your brain sees the fridge, it's like, oh, this is the way it always is. And it's like you can't actually see anything else. It's almost as if you're not actually seeing what you're seeing because you're seeing what you've always seen. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? So this is why when you go to like a new city or you go to Disneyland uh, or you have a new experience, you kind of have this euphoria that comes over you. you, you know, like this overstimulated kind of experience where there's lights and there's things. And, you know, like when you drive down to Seattle for the first time and you come over the bridge and you see the whole downtown and you see the stadiums and the harbor, you just like, whoa, there's this, there's this. And you just like, you're kind of fired up because your brain is actually like taking in all this new information. But when you've seen something over and over and over again, your brain tends to divert to seeing what it's always seen. So, baby, I don't know where you're sitting. Where are you, sweetheart? She's way at the back. It's not my fault. I'm sorry, but it's not my fault. I was born this way. <laughs> Shh. This isn't an interactive experience, all right? I got the microphone. Um, here's, here's my point. What is true of what we observe visually in the world can also be true of how we perceive things and people. Oftentimes we see a person, we've had an encounter with them, it could have been a bad encounter, it could have been a good encounter, but, but that encounter is now the way you see that person all the time. It, it's really hard for us to see them in any different light. It can also be true of the way we see Jesus. And, and what we're going to see in our text today as we come into Matthew chapter 16, is Jesus is going to have a conflict, uh, literally a confrontation, and this is the beginning of a very significant confrontation with the religious establishment. And they're looking at Jesus, like they're staring at him, they, they, they can see him, but they can't actually see him. They can't see him. So let's go, Matthew, well, we're actually going to go back one verse, Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 39, because it's going to kind of set up the context for us. Matthew writes this, he says, after Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into a boat, went to the vicinity of uh, Magadan. Now, whenever Matthew is writing in his gospel, he always includes these transitional statements, and they seem like throwaway lines or maybe just lines to connect from one part of a story to another, but there's much more going on than just that. What Matthew is trying to do with these little throwaway statements is give us hints and clues about what is actually going to occur. So oftentimes there's things that are being set up for us that are very important for us to know. So Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is actually leaving a Gentile territory. He had just fed the 4,000. He'd done that in Gentile territory. That was pretty significant. It was his way of uh, showing the people, showing us that, that God came for more than just the religious establishment, more than for just the nation of Israel, more than just for those who were Jewish in nature, that he actually came for the outsider. 
But what we're going to see now is that Jesus leaves the Gentile region. He actually moves into Jewish territory. That's where he's going. And Matthew wants us to see that. And Matthew chapter 16, like, it is one of the more pivotal chapters in the whole book. There's going to be some of the more significant things Jesus is going to do or say that are going to happen as we enter into Matthew chapter 16. In other words, we're starting to hit the climax of what's happening. So, so it's a pretty, pretty big deal that Jesus is going into this Jewish region. And then look at what Matthew writes in verse 1 of chapter 16. He says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested him by asking him to show a sign, show them a sign uh, from heaven. Now, if you've been hanging around with us for a while, this should sound familiar to you because there's almost an identical uh, line that we see from Matthew where Jesus has an encounter with some religious leaders all the way back in Matthew chapter 12. I think that was like 2011 when we were back there. And Andrew preached that text. And it's not a coincidence that Matthew uses the same language in Matthew 16 that he uses in uh, chapter 12. He's not like he was short on words or wasn't sure what to say. He actually wants us to remember back to Matthew chapter 12. But there's some distinctions that he makes here in verse 1 of chapter 16 that, that kind of separates this story from what's taking place in chapter 12. The first one is this. If you notice in verse 1, he, he names who these people are that Jesus is having an encounter with. He says that Jesus comes across these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pretty big deal. Big deal for a couple of reasons. First reason is this, uh, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't really like each other very much. Uh, there were three groups that made up the, the, the leaders or the council that represented the Sanhedrin, which gave oversight to the religious community. And these two groups in particular really didn't like each other. Not only did they not like each other, there was some vitriol hate for one another. So the fact that Matthew is saying that these two groups of people came together to have a confrontation with Jesus, which is what is about to take place here, is pretty significant. I mean, to put this in like kind of common language or terms that maybe we can wrap our minds around a little bit better, this would be like Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton coming out on uh, you know, CNN or Fox News or whatever, holding hands, singing kumbaya to one, you know, with one another, saying, we have a plan to save the world. We all... Um, it's not going to happen. Right? It's not, not going to happen. It would be like Trudeau and Scheer or, you know, uh, or Elizabeth May and anybody, for that matter, uh, holding hands and, and saying, you know, we have the plan to save Canada. You would think to yourself, like, this is weird. Like, this isn't right. But yet, that's what's happening here. Yes, they're Jewish entities, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they hate one another. So what Matthew's trying to show us is not just that they hate one another and that they are working together, but he's trying to show us how they feel about Jesus. How much must they hate Jesus and what he represents if they are willing to work together? If you were a first century reader reading this verse, you would be picking your jaw up off the table saying, what is going on? How is it possible that these two are working together? But he says something else in verse 1 that indicates that this is more significant than what took place in chapter 12. Look at what he says. In, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus, and look at what he says. He says they tested him 
by asking to show them a sign from heaven. In Matthew chapter 12, they asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. But it says in Matthew chapter 16 that they tested him. In other words, they wanted Jesus to prove himself. Now think about this for a second. Again, if you've been following along the gospel of Matthew, you you probably have, you should at least, think to yourself, well, hasn't Jesus actually shown them a number of signs? Hasn't he done a bunch of stuff? Like I remember last week, he fed 4,000. A couple weeks before that, he fed 5,000. He calmed some storms. He's healed people. There's been a lot of signs. What's going on? Well, they're looking at Jesus, and they can see him. They can't really see him. And what Matthew's trying to show us here by indicating that they are coming to him to test him is that their motives were not pure. They were looking for a reason to not have to accept Jesus for who he said he was. So often, when we come to Jesus, this is our posture. We come to Jesus, and we see him, and he, we hear his claims, and we, we hear the things that he says about who he is, and we see the things that he does, and we like them. There's, there's something about it that we like, but there's these parts, if we're honest, about Jesus, about his claims, about some of the things he asks of us, requires of us, calls us to, and we don't like them. They bother us. And so what do we do? We, we might not be so bold as to do what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing, which is come to Jesus and say, prove it. But if we're honest, in our heart, we do very similar things. We, we try and find loopholes, if you will, as to why we don't have to do the thing that Jesus is saying that we should indeed do. We might try and find theological loopholes, right? Like We can kind of Bible nerd our way out of something. Well, does it really mean that? I read the Greek one time. I heard a guy say this one time, and I don't think that's what it really means. Well, we use, you know, for those who are maybe not followers of Jesus, they use philosophical uh, loopholes. They try and find reasons that they would claim are intellectual to discredit the claim that Jesus is Lord so that they don't have to actually trust him and follow him. I mean, I would argue, I would submit to us, and this is just, you know, this, this is, I got no fact to back this up. This is just my personal experience. Whenever I've encountered somebody who is vehemently opposed to Jesus, to his, his exclusive claims of lordship, more often than not, in fact, almost all the time, it's not actually intellectual. It's a heart thing. Because if Jesus is Lord, that means I'm not. And if he's Lord, that means I need to humble myself and submit to him. And I don't really like that idea. So I would rather try and excuse it away somehow. Oftentimes what we see people doing when, when the radical claims of Jesus are made is we, we just try and, we, we try and shush Jesus, right? We try and domesticate him. We try and, we, we try and just include him in the long list of spiritual gurus and religious leaders. I use this analogy a lot, but we try and treat Jesus like he's just one other meal on the buffet, right? There's a little Hinduism, there's yoga, there's Gandhi, there's this, there's that. And I'm just going to have a little bit of Jesus and add him to my plate. 
But what we're trying to do at the end of the day is get out of recognizing that Jesus is Lord. We can see him, but we can't really see him. We don't want to see him because we want to see him as we've always seen him so we don't have to do anything about it. Even those of us in the church are like, well, that's not me. I, I, Jesus is Lord. That's what he is. Is he Lord over your money? Is he Lord over your search history, search engine history on your computer? Is he Lord over your vacations? Is he Lord over your retirement? Is he Lord over your marriage? Is he Lord over whether you've forgiven your spouse? Is he Lord over how you love your parents? Is he Lord over everything? I mean, I say this a lot as well. Most of the work of pastoral ministry, of preaching and teaching, is just convincing people that they're not the exception to the rule. Even in the church, where we give mental assent to the idea, this idea that Jesus is Lord, at the end of the day, we just try and figure out why that doesn't apply to us. Why we can sleep with someone we're not married to. Why we can do this. Why we can do that. Because, well, if Jesus knew me, if he knew my story, if he knew my plight, he never would have said these things. What the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees are trying to do here is they're trying to find a loophole to excuse themselves from following Jesus. There's a great line I read in an article that Tim Keller wrote once. He says this, it's long, hang with me, it's worth it. He says, in 1971, I heard a talk, two illustrations that changed my life. The woman who gave the talk was named Barbara Boyd. and She said, if somebody said to me, come on in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd, it's a bit of a problem because I can't separate them. It's not like the top half of me is Barbara and the bottom half of me is Boyd. So if you won't have Boyd, you can't get the Barbara. If you're going to keep the Boyd out, I can't come in at all. She continued to say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sin, answer my prayers, do this for me, do that for me, but don't be the absolute master of my life. Jesus, Savior, come in, but Lord, stay out. How can he come in at all? Because he's all Savior and he's all Lord. He's Lord because he's Savior. He's Savior because he's Lord. And I remember her second illustration. If the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, with the thickness, was the thickness of a piece of paper, the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our galaxy is less than a speck of dust in the part of the universe that we can see. And that part of the universe might just be a speck of dust compared to all of the universe. If Jesus is the Son of God, who holds all this together with the power of his word, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Then she asked us all to go outside for one hour and say nothing. Just think about what this means to you. She was expanding on Jesus' message. If you intellectually assent, yes, I think Jesus is probably the Son of God. I think he probably died for our sins, but he is not the center of your life. Then you may think you understand, but you really don't. 
It's not just a matter of commitment or lack of discipline. There's a spiritual deadness. Notice what he says here. You don't really see it. It's like you see it, but you don't see it. You don't understand it. You don't get it. You need to wake yourself up. You're trying to find a loophole, an excuse, a reason. They didn't like what Jesus had to say to them. Is that us? Is that us? What he says next, Matthew writes this, verse 2. It says, he replied... So they come to Jesus, ask for a sign from heaven. Here's Jesus' reply to them, okay? So these guys are coming to test him. They ask Jesus for a sign from heaven. Listen to Jesus' response. I just love this, by the way. This is classic Yoda Jesus, right? You're thinking, like, well, let's just read this. Here's what he says. When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. It's like, what are you talking about? Did you get into grandpa's cough syrup again, Jesus? This doesn't make any sense. He's kind of being elusive, right? He's not, he's not directly answering their question. They ask for a sign. Jesus doesn't give them what they want. Side note here, if you just think back over the scope of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus' ministry in general, the gospel of Matthew in particular, here's what, here's what you're going to see time and time again. When genuine seekers come to Jesus, he doesn't do this. He's not elusive. He doesn't kind of give them the runaround. He, he actually answers their questions. He actually meets them where they're at. But there's something happening here that is causing Jesus to not want to do that. Again, if you go back to verse 1, you see we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again, not a coincidence. Matthew is trying to show us that there is a conflict here that is escalating. It's escalated beyond what's occurred in chapter 12. In chapter 12, it was just two guys that didn't get along. In chapter 16, what, what Matthew wants us to see with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and with them coming to test Jesus is this is now a conflict that has gone to like Mach 9, Mach 3, Mach 10, whatever the bad mock is, that's where this is at. This is Jesus against the entire religious establishment. And that's what we're going to see for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is going to continue to get more and more critical, more and more firm, more and more direct with the religious leaders. With genuine seekers, not the case. We're going to continue to see his grace and his kindness towards them. But with these guys, these hard-hearted religious leaders who refuse to see He's going to amp it up. So he doesn't answer their question. I mean, this is, this is like a parable, right? This is just agrarian culture. Like they're a farming culture. They, they, they understood. What Jesus is trying to say is you understand how to tell what the weather's going to be like by looking up at the sky, right? We have these little uh, pithy sayings. This is when I start to veer out of like my area of knowing anything about anything. Like, isn't there like a red sky at night, red sky at morning? Hey, I did know. Okay, good. Um, So here's what Jesus is saying. You guys are smart guys. You know some stuff about some stuff. You know how to look up at the sky and tell what the weather's going to be. But look at what he says next. 
Second half of verse 3, he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. Smart guys, you know some stuff about some stuff. But you cannot interpret the sign of the times. In other words, you can look at the sky, and based on the color, based on what's happening, you know what's going on. You know what the weather's going to be like. But you're looking at me. Like I'm right in front of you. You don't even have to guess. It's not a guessing game. It's not like, well, sometimes the sky is red and it's not always a good thing. Like I'm right here in front of you in the flesh demonstrating myself to you over and over and over and over and over and over again. What Jesus says, you cannot interpret the sign of the times. In other words, you can't see me. You see me, but you don't see me. Now, this phrase that Jesus uses here, this phrase, sign of the times, you cannot interpret the sign of the times. This is like lobbing a massive grenade over at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you've ever been in an argument with your spouse, I'm assuming that happens from time to time in your home, you know there are certain things that you can say that are going to let's say, escalate the problem, right? Buzzwords, names, words, like might have four letters in them, some of them. There's just things you can say that are really gonna like get under your spouse's skin. I never do that. My wife does that all the time to me. And I don't do that to her. That's what Jesus is doing here. He he intentionally picks this phrase. Now, remember who these guys are, right? Pharisees, Sadducees. These are the Bible guys. So the Pharisees were actually like the interpreters of the law. They studied the Bible. And we often think of the Pharisees as like really, really bad dudes. They're not bad dudes. Like if you live next to a Pharisee, you would think that's a good thing. You'd want your kids to play with a Pharisee's kid. Like they were good people. They were moral people. They were religiously upright people, which should be a word of caution to us, just to be clear. We often read this and we hear about the Pharisees and we think they're like jerks. And we're like, man, I sure am glad I'm not a jerk like the Pharisees so I don't misunderstand Jesus uh, like the Pharisees do. But, but they're not actually that. They're, they're good folk. They're good church-going folk, serve on the hospitality team, lead a community group in DNA. Like they're, they're doing all the right things. They're one of the biggest givers at the church. They're smiley, they're happy. They're, they're trying really hard to follow Jesus, but they still can't see him. Word of caution. Total side note. And then you got the Sadducees who were more like the governing body over the temple. They were the aristocrats. They were wealthy. They were political movers and shakers. And Jesus looks at those guys and he says, you don't understand the sign of the times. It's a Bible phrase. He's borrowing that right out of the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, there's this conflict that is happening between the nation of Israel and Babylon, where Babylon has uh, the nation of Israel uh, in captivity. And there's this hope, there's this promise that one day one would come to rescue the nation of Israel from captivity in Babylon. But if you take a step back, that theme of the sign of the times is one that is woven all throughout the story of God. Because the story of God is one giant story of God's attempt, his, his pursuit rather, uh, his reconciliation of humanity back to himself. And what's happened in the nation of, uh, of Israel at the time that, that Daniel 
use this phrase, and this is a theme that kind of keeps happening throughout the nation of Israel as they continue to walk away from God, as he continues to try and rescue them, as he continues to try and save them. Uh, This thing happens in them where they start to get hard-hearted towards God. They start to reject his prophets. They start to reject his law. They start to reject his ways. And they forget where they came from. They forget that the reason that God actually chose Abraham and the nation of Israel to be his people was was not for their own good, but it was for the good of the world. It was that they would be a blessed nation to be a blessing. And the the thought that the nation of Israel had was, was now so myopic. It wasn't about blessing anybody else. It was all about them. It was nationalistic. It was all about make Israel great again, Right? We just want to get back to that day when Israel will be great. We want a king who will come like David, who will make us great. Make us an empire. Make us a world power. Make us an economic leader. They were tired of captivity. And what Matthew's been doing all through his gospel, it's just woven in there time and time and time. It's why we have to keep going back to the book of Isaiah when we teach out of the gospel of Matthew is because what what Jesus has been doing, what Matthew has been doing, they've been trying to show us that Jesus is the answer to the sign of the times. That's who he is. And so when Jesus says to the religious leaders, you can interpret the sky, but you can't interpret the sign of the times, what he's saying is you don't know your Bibles. You read it, but you don't know it. You study it, but you don't know it. If you go to John's gospel, Jesus critiques the Pharisees quite harshly, saying you study the scriptures hoping that in them you will find eternal life, but you fail to find it because you seek to recognize that they are about me. The Bible's all about Jesus. And so in Matthew's gospel, we have this picture of Jesus where he comes on the scene, the one who is the answer to the sign of the times, and what does he say? He comes on the scene. What's the first sermon he preaches? A little bit shorter than my sermon, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Remember, at this time, the nation of Israel was still in captivity underneath the captivity of the Romans. The Roman Empire ruled over the nation of Israel. And these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they didn't want to be ruled by the Romans. They wanted freedom. They wanted power. They wanted dominion. They wanted things to be the way that they once were. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what he's really saying, what you would have heard if you were a Pharisee and a Sadducee is, oh, that's awesome. This is the answer to the sign of the times. The kingdom of God is coming. He's going to come. He's going to come in power. He's going to come in authority. He's going to free us from the Romans. Let's pay attention to this Jesus guy. And then Jesus comes, and and, and what does he say? Sermon on the Mount, which is what? The constitution of the kingdom, we said. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. When someone strikes you, and he speaks specifically of a Roman guard, when someone strikes you in the cheek, turn the other cheek. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you must be less than. If you want to be first, you must be last. And they're hearing this. It's like they can see him, but they can't see him. And Jesus comes and he, they demand a sign, prove to us. 
He does signs, miracles. But think about Jesus' miracles. What were they? Feeding hungry people, healing sick people, calming storms to save people. Always other-centered, always humbling himself. And sometimes he even did it for the Gentiles. What kind of sign were they looking for? They wanted a Jesus. They wanted a Messiah who was, who was going to come in power and authority. And don't miss my point here. Because it's easy, it's easy to go, oh, man. Like, if these guys would just turn a few pages over, they would see that this Jesus guy's a big deal. But don't miss my point. They had a preconceived idea of who they wanted Jesus to be. And when he didn't perfectly match up, they couldn't see him. I mean, they could see him, but they couldn't see him. I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but do we ever do that? We have an idea in our mind of, of what we want Jesus to be like, how we think a God should act, of the way we think a God should move in our life. And when he doesn't do it, it's like we can't see him. I mean, these, these guys, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they're going to be responsible for the death of Jesus. They're the ones that are going to hand him over to be crucified. And I don't want to hyperbolize or say something that I'm not saying here, but when Jesus doesn't line up with our idea of what we think he should line up with, more often than not, we just push him to the side. Jesus, why didn't you heal the person I wanted you to heal? Jesus, why have you made my life so difficult? Jesus, why so much hardship? Why so much pain? Why so much suffering? Jesus, I've done everything you've asked me to do. Why won't you bless me the way I want you to bless me? And friends, here's the warning for us. When we have that posture towards Jesus when we come to him with our own idea of what he is supposed to be like and he doesn't meet our expectations of what he is supposed to be like here's what can happen and I know some of you are these people and I certainly know you know these people we become cynical and we become hard hearted But there's something else here for us. When we have an idea of how Jesus is supposed to work in our life and he doesn't quite match up with the way we want him to work and we just push him off to the side. And listen, I know where we are. It's a Sunday morning. It's church gathering. So you can do all of those things and still sit here. You know that, right? You can do it. You can raise. You can do it while you're raising your hands in worship, and giving and serving. But in your heart, you've done this. 
Don't miss that. Right? These are the Bible guys, right? Don't miss that. Here's, though, the risk we run. We miss out on the beautiful work that Jesus wants to do in our lives. See, here's what I mean by that. A lot of us, what we would really, really like in a Jesus is one who would conform to our image of what a Jesus should be. Take off the hard edges, meet us right where we're at, and not ask us to change at all. But that's not what Jesus does. He's loving, he's gracious, he's kind. He's all those things and more. But when he, when he comes to us, he is who he is. And he asks us to change and conform into his likeness. He, he actually wants to get into our lives and do a deep work in them. And that will not happen without some hardship, without some pain, without some difficulty, without us having to submit ourselves to Jesus. And when we skip that process, we skip out on the beautiful work that Jesus wants to do in us. I mean, I've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but right now, in this moment, our family is going through hard things. And if you know, my mother-in-law passed away five weeks ago. It's been hard. Harder than I ever imagined something like this would be. And it would be possible. It never entered our mind, but it's, it's a thing that can happen where we can just say, Jesus, we don't like what you've done. This is too hard. This is unfair. She was too young. Cancer's too gross. We're done. But if we had done that, if we do that, we would be missing out on some of the most beautiful work that Jesus is doing in our lives right now. It's hard. I would never wish it on anyone. But at the same time, in the middle, in the middle of that dark, hard place where Jesus didn't do what we wanted him to do, he is ministering to us. He is comforting us. He's, he's blessing us. Not in a way that we ever imagined, but with himself. And when we skip that process, we short-circuit the work that Jesus wants to do to make us more like him. It's like we can see him, but we can't see him. Don't miss out on that beautiful work that Jesus wants to do. Jesus goes on. Here's what he says. Next, verse 4. He says, okay, this is going to get harsh, okay? 
Here's what he says. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given uh, none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And then Jesus left them and he went away. Okay, so Jesus says to them, you can't see because you can't see. It's like you see me, but you don't see me. You don't understand who I am. And then he gives them this harsh word. He calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. Some of you would ask, and you should ask, why would Jesus say this? It's harsh. Sounds like he's angry. Is he angry? I don't know if he's angry. He's righteously angry if he's angry. But here's what I know about Jesus. Is he confronting them directly? Yes, he absolutely is. But don't miss out on the fact that for 15 chapters previously, Jesus has been working overtime trying to show these guys who he is, demonstrating that he is the answer to the sign of the times, demonstrating that he is the Messiah, demonstrating that he desperately wants them to come to know him. But they refuse. They refuse. They refuse. They refuse. They refuse. Their hard-heartedness escalates. It continues to grow. And so what Jesus is doing here, is it confrontational? Yes. Is, Is Jesus probably raising his voice a little bit? Yes. Are these people offended when they hear Jesus call them a wicked and adulterous generation? Yes, but here is my contention. It is actually one of the most loving things Jesus could do for them. Because he desperately wants them to know who he is, and so he's willing to confront them in their hard-heartedness. A few weeks ago, my youngest son, Lucas, you know, he, he's, he's whimsical is probably the best way to put it. Like, this is the kid that, like, whatever. He's very whimsical and often forgets he's on planet Earth. And so my wife was walking home with him, and he's walking home, and it's busy after school time, and there's cars everywhere, and he just decides he's going to run across the street. Now, what does my wife do? She does what every good parent would do. She yells at him, Lucas! That was fine. I just wanted to do that. And he snaps out of it, comes back to planet Earth, doesn't cross the street. He's mad at her. Why are you mad, Lucas? I'm mad because you yelled at me. Well, mommy yelled at you because she loves you and doesn't want you to become roadkill. Sometimes we yell because we love. If Kelly had whispered to him, oh, Lucas, I really don't want to upset your feelings and spank your inner child. You know, you just go do whatever you want. You're you're a snowflake, one of a kind, and we're going to give you a ribbon after you get hit by that Mack truck for your participation in this event. That would not have been very loving. If Jesus had come to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he said, well, guys, I'm really sorry you feel this way about all this, you know, hope it goes well for you. Would not be kind. If Jesus is who he says he actually is, then his, his critique of them here is actually warranted because he desperately wants them to repent. And then look at what he says here, the second half of verse four. He says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Again, Jesus lays this out very clearly in Matthew chapter 12, so I'm not going to spend too much more time on it this morning, but You need to know, sorry, I know, my bad, sorry, children are terrified of me. You you need to understand, though, that the prophet Jonah, Old Testament prophet Jonah, he was the sign. 
When we talk about the sign of Jonah, Jonah was the sign. If you know the story of Jonah, he was called by God to go to a group of people to preach the gospel, call them to repentance, the people that he hated, and so he ran in the opposite direction. And God, in his loving, gracious kindness, uh, and kindness, just like he does with us, did everything in his power to get Jonah to repent. And one of the things that he did to get Jonah to repent was he had him cast into the ocean swallowed by a large fish where he stayed for three days and three nights and then he was spit back up in the shore. And he went to uh, the people of Nineveh and he preached probably the most uh, half-hearted sermon that has ever been preached in all of human history and the people repented. And the question is, why did the people repent? Because Jonah was sent by God. They knew the story of Jonah, that he ran, that he tried to run as far away from God as he could, but that God actually had to get him into the belly of a fish for three days, somehow kept him alive, and then spit him up on the shore. And the fact that he was standing there in front of the Ninevites, despite the, the, the weakest, most seeker-sensitive sermon that has ever been preached, right? This was Joel Osteen on steroids. Love you. The people repented. Jonah was the sign. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, just as Jonah went into the whale for three days and three nights, so too am I going to go into the ground for three days. In fact, it's going to be the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have Jesus handed over to be crucified, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Jesus goes to the cross, dies in our place for our sins. He's buried for three days. And on the third day, what happens? He's alive. He's standing there. Physically resurrected. Bodily resurrected. These men, they're going to get to look at the resurrected Christ. Jesus will be their sign. Will they repent? They won't. In fact, their hard hearts become harder. They go on to persecute those who do believe Jesus is the sign of the times. They go on to persecute those who can see Jesus. They will see Jesus. These men are going to see the resurrected Jesus but they won't see him. They won't see him. And here's what Matthew wants to leave us with. Here's what Jesus is saying to us. Those who have the privilege of being on the other side of this story, looking back, we can see, we can see the resurrected Jesus, right? We are the body of Christ. We get to see the resurrected Jesus work in our lives all the time. We get to see the resurrected Jesus work in our church, work through our church. In a couple minutes, we're going to take communion, a reminder of the, re- the death, but also the resurrection of Jesus. His, the evidence of his resurrection, the fingerprints of his resurrection are all over your life and all over this world. And here is the question for us. 
Will it be enough? Is that enough? For some of you, is, the question is, is that enough for you to right now in this moment recognize that Jesus is indeed the sign of the times? He's the answer to the sign of the times. He's the answer to the thing that you've always been looking for and you would humble yourself and give your life to him. And for those of us who have been following Jesus, for however long we've been following him, is it enough for us that today we will give just that much more of ourselves to him? That much more of our life we will give to Jesus because he is the answer. Jesus is trying to get you to this place where you can see him. You can actually see him. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, you are so gracious and kind. It is easy to look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and to condemn them, to think of them as fools. But the reality is you have been in hot pursuit of us for some time. You have, you have had to come and sit in front of us and call 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 us before we would come. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that in your kindness you have not left us, but you have pursued us. And I pray right now for us as a family that we would just know that that is so good. It's so good. And that your kindness to us would lead to more and more of our repentance. We'd give more and more of ourselves to you. And for those of us who this is new, this is the first time, Lord, just open our eyes. Allow us to see. We need to see. We want to see. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.